The summer I met Lois, uh, we were both working at Camp Blue Diamond in Middle Pennsylvania District in the Church of the Brethren. She was a camp counselor. I was the music and worship person for that summer, which meant that I played my guitar and led singing after meals in the campfires. I led Bible studies and planned worship elements for campfires and other all-camp events. And I filled in as a counselor from time to time as needed. It also meant that I had a more flexible schedule than the regular counselors, so I could schedule my free time to match theirs, and that gave me extra time with Lois, which was really great that summer because I enjoyed anything that we got to do together. One of the things that we did together was take a life-saving course offered by the lifeguard at camp. In fact, a number of us on the summer staff took that life-saving course that summer. We did a lot of studying and swimming, and of course, we practiced life-saving techniques. At that time, I was more thin and wiry than I am now, six and a half feet of mostly skin and bones and some tendons and muscles thrown in. So no one really wanted me as a partner when it came time to practice saving a drowning person, since I was, needless to say, not very buoyant. But Lois took me on as her life-saving swim buddy, and when we practiced, as well as when we finally took the actual test, I faced a difficult choice. How hard to make it on her to save me? Because we were supposed to struggle as a possible drowning victim would struggle, but I didn't want to struggle too much and make it too hard on her. But I also knew that I couldn't make it too easy because the reality of life-saving is that it isn't easy. The truth is, when someone needs saving, they're often in a frenzy of struggle. Their own survival is all they can think about, so they're often very difficult for the lifeguard, the lifesaver, to manage. So, a good life-saving instructor will tell you a couple of things when you're learning to be a lifeguard. First of all, don't let the potential drowning victim get you in their grasp. Someone who is fearing for their life will grab hold of you, any part they can grab hold of, and won't let go, won't listen to instruction, to reason, and may well pull you under with them. To avoid that danger, you're supposed to approach them from behind, if you can, to be sure to put yourself in the best position to control the situation, to control the struggle. You can't save them if you don't take steps to ensure your own safety. In that way, it's a little bit like getting that instruction from the airline attendant when you're on a flight and he or she says right before the flight takes off that in the event of an emergency and the cabin pressure goes down to put on your own oxygen mask before you assist someone else. And then there was one other thing that that life-saving instructor told us that seemed rather harsh to me at the time. She said, sometimes if the victim has hold of you and you can't get through to them to let go of you so you can help them, you may actually have to take them back under the water so that they will let go of you. In other words, she was saying that you have to act like you are drowning the drowning victim. 
in order to get them to let you save them. Take them under the water so that you'll be able to bring them back above the water. Act like you're going to take their life in order to save their life. Both Lois and I passed the life-saving class that summer, but that's more than 35 years ago now, and I doubt that I could pass it today. I can still swim. I still do swim, but I, I don't know that I would have the physical strength to deal with a drowning person, the physical strength to save them. I suspect that these days, if I'm in the water, I would do best just to take care of myself and not worry about everyone else. But those lessons from that summer have stayed with me. The scripture for today is, of course, not about lifeguards and swimming pools, but it does offer its own kind of life-saving instructions. And in a way, it's not unlike that final instruction that our life-saving instructor gave to us that summer about taking the person under the water in order to bring them back up out of the water. All who want to save their lives will lose them, Jesus says, but all who lose their lives because of me and because of the good news will save them. It's a familiar statement to those of us who are Jesus' followers, but at the same time, it doesn't seem like a very sensible kind of statement. Saving leads to losing, and losing leads to saving? How does that work? Logic would suggest that saving leads to saving, and losing leads to losing. But in the deep end of life, logic doesn't always have the answer. And what seems perhaps counterintuitive might be the better way to go. And this is played out in the Gospels where Jesus is so often about the great reversal. He turns things around 180 180 degrees from what the culture says, even sometimes from what our instincts would tell us. Go down to go up, turn your cheek to stop the violence, the first shall be last, give your life to save your life. Our intuition, our instincts, tell us that the important thing is to save, to protect, and to fight for ourselves and those who are closest to us. Our culture advises us to focus on whatever it is that gives us the advantage. To compete, to judge, to separate, to wield power, to look out for number one, to accumulate, to use force if necessary, to keep score, to defend ourselves, to value those who are in our tribe far above those who are not in our tribe, to demand respect, to cheat if that's what it takes to ensure victory, to enforce the status quo, to believe yourself superior. Jesus' teachings, all of them, run counter to all of that. So we might say that Jesus is counter-cultural, But it's more than that. Jesus calls us to completely open ourselves to trust, vulnerability, and compassion. To stop prioritizing tribe and even self and instead give ourselves, risk ourselves, to do what Jesus would do. What would Jesus do? Jesus would carry the cross. Jesus would go to the cross rather than call down fire on his enemies. He would rather die than kill. He would rather lose his life 
then lose the center of his being, the holy center of nonviolence and reconciliation, care for all humanity, and loving kindness. What would Jesus do? Sacrifice himself rather than sacrifice the person right in front of him. It's the great reversal, the upside-down kingdom, running counter to the culture. Call it what you will, but know this. If the world promotes something as being, quote-unquote, in your best interest, there's a good chance that it's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is 180 degrees in the other direction. Richard Rohr, who I quoted a couple of weeks ago and has written a book titled Falling Upward about how spiritual maturity often doesn't happen until we have a good many years under our belts and that spiritual maturity usually first takes us in a downward direction, has this to say about Jesus' reversal of our sensibilities and our logic. He writes, a down then up perspective doesn't fit into our Western philosophy of progress, nor into our desire for upward mobility, nor into our religious notions of perfection or holiness. Let's hope it's not true, at least for me, we all say. Yet the perennial tradition, sometimes called the wisdom tradition, says it is and will always be true. Today we might use a variety of metaphors, reversing engines, a change in game plan, falling off the very wagon we constructed. No one would choose such upheaval consciously. We must somehow fall into it. Those who are too carefully engineering their own superiority systems will usually not allow it at all. It is much more done to us than anything we do ourselves. He notes that sometimes non-religious people are more open to this change in strategy than are religious folks who have their private salvation project all worked out. Falling down and moving up, he continues, is the most counterintuitive message. But that just might be the central message of how spiritual growth happens. He concludes, by denying their pain and avoiding the necessary falling, many have kept themselves from their own spiritual journeys and depths and therefore have been kept from their own spiritual heights. Because none of us desire, seek, or even suspect a downward path to growth, we have to get the message with the authority of divine revelation. So Jesus makes it into a central axiom. The last really do have a head start in moving toward first. And those who spend too much time trying to be first will never get there. I don't know about you, but I'm convicted by Rohr's description of falling down. Because I recognize in myself that I am unlikely to actually choose the downward path. I believe that Jesus calls us to sacrifice and humility and vulnerability, but that doesn't mean I want to go there or that I'm seeking the opportunity to be last or to lose my life. 
I may not have a strong inclination to an attitude of superiority. It's really not my problem. But I do have an instinct for self-preservation. And that instinct is plenty strong. So I don't usually choose the cross-carrying task, but sometimes I fall into it. And when I fall, or when we fall, we would do well to stay in that low place for, just, for more than just a moment. What does it feel like to be on the floor? What does it feel like to be in the deep end? Is my life shaped by awareness or by panic? The first two months of pastoring in the two congregations, Goshen City and Middlebury, have been, oh, interesting, to say the least. The yoked pastorate is new and different to me and to us, but I am realizing just how different the two congregations actually are in personality, in structure, in traditions, in patterns, in history, in fears, and in hopes. One thing, however, that is not new and is not in the process of changing is the way that both congregations have a genuine desire to follow the countercultural Jesus, the Jesus of going the extra mile, the Jesus of washing feet, the Jesus of sitting at the table with outcasts, the Jesus of healing the sick and feeding the hungry and welcoming the children. Will those things make us popular in our culture, in our community? It is possible, even likely, that the countercultural, the carrying the cross Jesus will not be popular and we who follow him will not be popular as well. Does that mean that we need to focus our attention on the shiny object of cultural popularity? Play the game in terms of winning the Sunday sweepstakes? Prioritize the values of the culture that's all around us? No. No. Continuing the work of Jesus, carrying the cross of Jesus, following the example of Jesus, those are our guidelines. But what if that doesn't attract people? What if we don't grow? How will we survive? What if nobody likes us? I think those are all the wrong questions. Instead, I believe that God gives life to those who give their lives to God. What does that life look like? Looks like peace of mind. Looks like consistent compassion. It looks like depth of spirit. It looks like emotional availability. It looks like the courage to do what is right. 
It looks like non-judgment of the other or the opponent or the person who has hurt us in the past. It looks like trust that God's grace is bigger than our expectations. It looks like partnership with Jesus and kinship with each other. It looks like transformation of the sort that sneaks up on us and then blesses the world because we never made it about worldly success but about generous love. On this Sunday, as I am now installed as your pastor, I am very clear that what we are doing is not about any one person, me or any one of you. It is about us. It is about us in the company of Jesus for the glory of God and our neighbor's good. And I also know that to be who God is calling us to be, there will be cost. And there will be some sacrifice. But I also know that there will be some interesting times. And there will be blessings yet to be imagined. Our following of a Jesus who institutes the great reversal, the countercultural Jesus, the Jesus who identifies always with those who are at the edges may make us less than in the eyes of the world, but do not ever waver in the assurance that we are fully embraced by Christ and fully energized by the Spirit and fully loved by God. And so our sacrifices, our commitments, our lives together will not be in vain. Thanks be to God.